Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Theology and Insanity, your weekly Catholic podcast on all things theology, culture, politics, and of course, looking at some of the insanity that we're seeing in the world today. I'm your host, Dave Van Vickle, as always, joined by my co-host, Dr. Mike Cirillo from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Mike, how are you doing this morning? I'm wonderful. Happy Easter. We're recording this on Easter Tuesday. Yeah, he is risen. Yeah. Yeah, amen, amen. If you uh, are tuning in for the first time, then welcome so much. We're so happy to have you. If you've been listening to the last few episodes, we hope that they've been fruitful for you. We're making some strides here, and uh, what we want to do is start introducing the fact uh, that we can interact with you. We want to get some questions out there, you know, from the from the general public. So if you have any questions for us, we love to hear from you uh, and see where you're coming from and everything like that. Questions you have about things you hear, uh, please feel free to email us at questions at theologyandinsanity.com, theologyandinsanity.com. Today we have an awesome, awesome episode for you. Another professional theologian joins us, arguably one of the most preeminent theologians in the United States for sure, and I'm going to let Mike introduce him since you've, you've known Father for a while now. I, I have, and I often say this to Father, so he may be very tired of hearing it, but uh, this is Father Thomas Wynandy joining us today. Uh, I had the great privilege, and it made a lasting impression, as you can tell, of serving Mass for Father uh, in, the, in the 70s, in the 1970s in Maryland. Um, and it was just a wonderful memories I have of the way he said Mass, he prayed Mass, and was so kind to the altar boys. So today it's our joy, our privilege to have Father Thomas Wynandy, uh, OFM Capuchin. He was born in Delphos, Ohio in 1946 entered the Franciscan Capuchin Order in the Pittsburgh province in 1968. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1972. He earned a doctorate in historical theology at King's College, University of London in 1975. He has taught in a number of Catholic universities in the United States, and for 12 years was the warden, that is the president of Greyfriars Oxford, where he taught history and doctrine within the faculty of theology there at Oxford University. He's written or edited 20 books, published numerous articles in academic journals, and edited books of essays. For nine years, he served as the executive director for the Secretariat for Doctrine at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. He's given retreats, parish missions in the United States, Canada, Ireland, Great Britain. He's a former member of the Vatican's International Theological Commission. Uh, Pope Francis conferred upon him the Pro Ecclesiae at Pontificae Award in 2012. And his latest book, I'm so much looking forward to this, is Jesus Becoming Jesus, A Theological Interpretation of the Synoptic Gospels, and another volume, Jesus Becoming Jesus, A Theological Interpretation of the Gospel of John. He's presently working uh, on that second volume on the Gospel of John. Father, thank you so much for joining us. God bless you and welcome. How are you today? Good, good. Yes, yes. I, I'm very pleased to uh, be joining you uh, in this Easter season. Uh, an update on, on the G second volume of Jesus Becoming Jesus uh, that just came out um, uh, last week. Uh, on the, it's on the prologue in the uh, 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 Book of Signs within the Gospel of John. And so now I'm completing the third volume, which would be the rest of John. So, yes, so it's, it's uh, uh, I've been working on this for uh, seven years or more, these three volumes. So I'm happy that uh, uh, we're coming to, to the conclusion. So I'm not a scripture scholar, uh, uh, but uh, I, I 
did this. That's why I call it a theological interpretation. It's, they're not commentaries as such as a scripture scholar would do. Uh, so I think there's something unique about uh, a historical systematic theologian uh, delving into the scripture in the manner which I, I did. So I'm, I'm hoping that the readers will find them helpful and interesting. So, all right. But yes, it's good to be with you. Uh, today. Yeah, this is great. Father, one of the things that we've talked about a lot, before we get into the substantive questions that we have, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, what it means to do theology and what it means to to, re- to be a theologian. And one of the reasons we started this podcast is because we feel like, look, n- no Catholic should really be a slouch in theology. And I think especially in this time, we're hearing so many conflicting messages. It's kind of like a duty for Catholics to learn the faith well and learn theology uh, so that they can discern that. So we'd love to hear kind of how you got to be, I mean, you're, you're the kind of quintessential professional theologian. Where where did this all start? You know, if you tell us a little bit about your, your background. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> uh, well, as, as uh, Michael mentioned, you know, I entered the seminary uh, when I was quite young, 14 years old. Uh, at that time, I knew that the Lord wanted to be a, be a Capuchin and a priest, but uh, teaching theology had not entered my my mind. Um, but as I, the years that I spent in high school, college, studying theology, um, I came to love uh, learning. Uh, uh, there's a famous book out, you know, a long time ago, Love of Learning and the Knowledge of God. Well, um, I sort of felt that I loved learning and loved to come to know the knowledge of God. Uh, my my interest uh, varied over the course of that time. <clears throat> At first, I really fell in love with history uh, and was thinking, well, I'd like maybe to teach history. Well, then I got to philosophy, and I <laughs> loved philosophy, so I thought I'd Teach maybe teach theology, and when I got into theology, uh, I came to love theology, uh, and uh, and what ended up happening, I was able to uh, combine all those <laughs> my loves of history, philosophy, and theology because I came, became a historical theologian. Uh, you know the fathers of the church, Aquinas, uh, contemporary. Uh, and I've very much been sort of a, a systematic theologian, very much in, in involved in uh, trin- uh, theological, philosophical issues like the metaphysics of uh, the Trinity and the Incarnation. Uh, and so uh, uh, all the, my interests sort of c- came together. Uh, and one of the things I realized uh, in studying theology is that it has to do with um, what you know St. Augustine and St. Anselm later spoke about as faith-seeking understanding. Uh, the very nature of faith, if our faith is alive, it should compel us to want to understand more the marvelous mysteries that we believe uh, the Trinity, for example, it's it's the quintessential, the foundational mystery of all the other mysteries, and so often we can just write it off. Well, this is uh, an impossible mystery of how 
the one God can be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can one be three and three be one? But if you come to know the beauty of the Trinity more, it just takes on more life. It still always remains a mystery. Uh, it's the same way with the incarnation or the resurrection that we're celebrating today or the Eucharist. They are all marvelous mysteries, uh, but the Holy Spirit wants to compel us, to compel us to understand the mysteries more. Uh, I always make the distinction that in theology, you're trying to, to understand more fully the nature of the mystery, what the mystery is. Uh, theology is not trying to solve a problem. Uh, uh, trying to solve the mystery of the Trinity to make it comprehensible, where we can say, "Oh yes, now I understand." If you ever come to think you can, you're finally solve the problem of mystery, and it becomes perfectly clear. Or the same thing with the incarnation. Oh, I, now I see how one God, how the Son of God, can come to exist. If you think you've comprehended it and and finally solve the problem, what you should re realize is you've fallen into a heresy. Right. right. <laughs> That's right. All heretics solve the, solve the mystery. They see the mystery as a problem, and they solve the problem. And in solving the problem and, and solving the mystery, they've all fallen into heresy. But within theology, the mystery remains. The mystery remains, but you get a deeper and fuller understanding of exactly what the mystery mystery is. And the whole history of theology is, is of that nature. That's uh, right. The mysteries are not problems to be solved or puzzled through riddles to be, dis but, but, but it's a person to be loved, three persons, divine persons, and that love compels us to, to seek, to, to know our beloved better, doesn't it? It does. That's right. That's exactly right. I honestly think that you know so much of what we talked about can be summed up in that one sentence, right? That mystery, it, mysteries are not a problem to be solved, and we've talked so much about how, like, people in theology in a lot of universities are trying to quantify everything and and you know make it into something like physics or something like biology, and and that you know they see it as if you can't if you can't measure it, if you can't prove it, it's not real, and I think that's so interesting that. You know, we see mystery as a problem now, and it's not. And in fact, it's no. You know, you're absolutely right. And you know, if you if you noticed in Revelation, as God reveals Himself, uh, we come to know more about Him, uh, but simultaneously He becomes more of a mystery. Uh, you know, Moses wanted to know the name of God uh, because he wanted to know who God is, and uh, so God acquiesced to Moses's request and says, I am who am. Well, Moses must have been taken aback because now he knew the name of God. He knew he was <laughs> he who is, but David himself, he who is, uh, makes him even more comprehensible right. than, uh, than what right. Moses had before. And the same way when God reveals the Trinity, we now know God is the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in so doing, we, we know the mystery, but the mystery becomes even more incomprehensible. And the same thing to be in heaven. If you're thinking when you get to heaven, you're going to comprehend the Trinity or the Incarnation or not, you're going to see the mystery absolutely clear. 
but in seeing the mystery in all its perfection, it will be even more an incomprehensible mystery because you're seeing the mystery face to face. Wow. And so it, it, that was what brings us joy. Our joy is in seeing the mystery that's so incomprehensible that all we can do is bow down and adore it in joy and glory and, and, and rejoicing. Uh, that's going to be the joy of heaven, of seeing the mystery, knowing the mystery completely and finding it completely unutterably incomprehensible. That yeah, is that our is. hope. I, I, that's our deep, deep desire. And, and we have that opportunity through, and really only through Jesus Christ, which leads to a bit of insanity that I, we wanted to discuss with you today, Father. Uh, <laughs> we, we have this, this option, this, this gift, this offer of God to be in heaven forever through the Lord Jesus, and it's solely through Him. So... There's a concern uh, in this regard, um, and it's, it shows up and manifests in many different ways these last few decades, but more acutely, I suppose, perhaps even more painfully, in 2019, there was a joint statement between the Grand Imam Ahmed Al-Tayeb and Pope Francis. It's often called the Abu Dhabi Statement, the document on human fraternity for world peace and living together. Um, in it, we read this. I'm going to quote a sentence from the statement. Um, the pluralism and diversity of religions, color, sex, race, and language are willed by God in his wisdom through which he created human beings. This divine wisdom is the source from which the right to freedom of belief and the freedom to be different derives, end of quote. Um, so here's some questions uh, we have, many of us. Does God will different religions? And, and if he does, how does he will different religions? Are they all equally viable ways to God? Or does it not really matter what religion you choose to believe? I mean, it seems many religions contradict each other on many important points, such as the ultimate purpose of human life, the meaning of salvation, for example. Um, is Jesus Christ unique or only one master among many? There's a lot of ways to phrase these questions. A lot of questions arise from this. How do you uh, uh, perceive uh, you know, the statement and the fallout? I think uh, one of the first distinctions we have to make is what God positively wills and what he permissively allows. Um, now, for example, you listed the things, the things that God willed. Uh, God willed the different sexual uh, diversity between man and woman. He positively willed the a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman, and he did that so that they could become one flesh in love and, and procreate children. Uh, you know, he 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 probably you know positively will different uh, peoples. You know, uh, Americans, Europeans, French, Indonesians. In you know that that. Is, a part of evolution and geography, whatever, but, you know, God could possibly will this diversity. Um, however, when it comes to religion, all right, uh, we're, we're in this different sort of setting. Uh, God made us in his image and likeness, and so by our very nature, we want, we, we seek what is, in a sense, divine. 
However, uh, left to our own devices in seeking God, we may come up with some truth about God, but that truth of God uh, will also uh, contain error as well. Uh, you, you see this in, you know, Greek philosophy, you know, Plato searching for God, Aristotle saying that God is, uh, that, that then, uh, God being the perfect being, uh, uh, all of this is being part of being human. Uh, but uh, while God permitted other religions that come forth from our nature, in a sense, naturally, uh, uh, those religions uh, will contain, you know, as it says in Vatican II, bits and pieces of truth, but it's also enmeshed in a huge amounts of error uh, that are detrimental uh, to the people who practice, who practice re the other religions. Um, and so uh, I, it would be wrong uh, to say that God positively willed all religions. He permitted other religions uh, because of our very nature as human beings. We're trying to seek the transcendent, uh, uh, the divine, whatever it might, might be. And so, the uh, uh, and so, you know, Buddhism may contain some bits that are true. Uh, Hinduism might have something. Uh, Islam may have have some. But they're because that they were not positively willed by God, and God did not positively reveal anything to them within those religions. Uh, they do. They're. They're not. They're not the same as Christianity. They're not the way to salvation. Um, and there. And there are dangers involved uh, in them as well. Uh, so. So. So Jesus. So you know. Um, Bishop Schneider, Athanasius Schneider, reported that he met with the Holy Father after the Abu Dhabi statement, and and asked him to clarify. Uh, Specifically with this question, the distinction you just made, Father. Yeah. When you say God positively wills diversity of religions, sex, race, etc., it sounds like they're all a coordinated list, uh, kind of univocally stated, uh, meaning the same exact thing. But rather, isn't it the case, Holy Father, the, the bishop said, that God permits, not positively wills, as you said, Father, uh, the diversity of religions, but actually positively wills sex, diversity of sex and uh, race, etc. And the Holy Father, according to the bishop's uh, report, said, yes, that is what I meant. So first of all, thankfully, the, the statement is vague enough. That That's it what, he, that what, <laughs> what he, he said. Why did he say it? So, well, then the bishop asked him to, if he wouldn't mind publicly clarifying it, but we're still awaiting that public clarification as well as perhaps some others. Clarification is not going to come. Uh, you know, we don't have to worry about, about that. Uh, <laughs> but wait, well, Father, can I ask you then? And you know, I, I just I'm curious why, why I, 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 I mean, I know you can't read someone's mind, but why, why, why not clarify? What's the reason? Well, I think the Pope's agenda is he wants to build up relationships with other religions, uh, and 
but doing it in the manner in which he's doing it, uh, I, I don't think is helpful, because ultimately uh, you're really undermining religion by saying no religion really possesses the truth. Um, I would rather have a Muslim think that his religion is true, or Buddhists think that his religion is true, and Christians thinking that their religion is true, than saying, well, it doesn't really make any difference uh, which religion you belong to, because no religion really has the fullness of truth. It's, it's really uh, detrimental to what religion is all about. That is seeking the truth about God, the divine, whatever. And, and so I think it's, uh, uh, while it seems to be helpful in making friendships, it ultimately undermines um, uh, the integrity of religious belief. Yeah, and I, I think it's helpful, maybe, maybe helpful in making friendships, but I don't think it's as helpful in evangelization as he thinks it is. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, in my own life, for sure, taking a stand the, the has Muslim, been better. The Muslim, a true Muslim is not going to say, that God willed all religions. Right. I don't think the guy in Abu Dhabi right. actually believed the statement he signed. Right. You know? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, he did it, you know, not to offend the Holy Father, but I can't imagine he would say, you know, God willed, positively willed Christianity. It may have been a stepping stone, but now we got the fullness of truth, and that is through the prophet Muhammad. And now there is only one true religion and that's Islam. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's, um, it's, 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 I like what you said, father, uh, that it ends up undermining things. So look, the intention, let's say the intention is a humanism in a good sense, uh, fraternity, uh, brotherly union, dialogue, uh, friendship. Okay. That's a very laudable intention, right? But I guess, to, kind to of. well, no, it, it it is as far as it goes. That's not your ultimate goal in life, but right, um, right. that's a very important one. But but um, but if you genuinely want friendship, which is an exchange of persons in love, and that love, true love, is grounded in truth, hmm? then um, if you really love someone, you want the best for them, which is salvation through Jesus Christ, right? So in the end, if you let uh, an aspiration, right, to, to a kind of humanism or fraternal fraternity, uh, fraternal union, uh, kind of eclipse your kind of duty out of love and friendship to share mm. with your friend of a different religion about the errors of his religion and the, the truth of the Catholic religion and invite him to enjoy the fullness of life, then that really... You said it, Father. It, it, it's self-defeating. It undermines the, the very intention. Um, it really isn't friendly. It really isn't humanistic. In the truest sense, it's not. To, to let that, that aspiration eclipse the, the deeper truth. Uh, do, you, do you find it ironic at all that uh, Pope Francis, he took his name from Francis of Assisi, and Francis went to the Sultan, literally like seeking conflict, at, at, whereas Pope Francis went to... Hoping to be a martyr... Uh, <laughs> right, right. And, uh, you know, he pre he preached the gospel to him. He's lucky to have got out alive to his right. own disappointment. Uh, uh, but you know, he did not go there thinking, uh, you know, right. let's become friends. He came there. I want to bring you salvation, and the salvation that I'm bringing you is in Jesus Christ. Uh, so Francis's approach, Saint Francis's approach is 
far different than from Pope Francis's approach. Yeah. yeah. Uh, could, could I, I would like to, <clears throat> if I could, yeah. it might be helpful for the audience uh, to see the differences between Christianity and other religions. And I want to do this by saying all other religions, except for Judaism and Christianity, are Gnostic. Now, what do I mean by Gnostic? Uh, Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. So in Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, for example, what is given, what is is saving knowledge. You know, if you want to reach nirvana or whatever in Buddhism, you have to do this, this, and this. Uh, in Hinduism, if you wherever you're supposed to go, you should do this, this, and this. They give you the knowledge you need to make yourself right with the transcendent or whoever. If you want to get to heaven, to God in Islam or whatever, these are the things you have to do. What is given is just knowledge. Uh, you, be, it's, you, be, you go from being ignorant to becoming knowing. But God does not act in such a way as to bring about a different kind of relationship with him. There's just one relationship, and you have to know, come to know what you need to do to get plugged into that relationship, all right? Now, Judaism and Christianity are far different, far, far different. In Judaism, for example, God acted in such a way by primarily making a covenant with the Jewish people that the Jewish people now had a relationship with God that no other nation had with God. But it's not based on that the Jews I mean, they did get knowledge, but it's not based on knowledge. It's based on the fact that God acted in a manner such that the Jews could now know God in a different way because of the covenant. They actually knew the one God, Yahweh. That is fulfilled in Christianity. We just celebrated in Holy Week and Easter uh, what that's all about. Uh, the Son of God became man. And through his passion, his death, and his resurrection, he put in place a whole new salvific schema such that by believing in Jesus, we can have a different relationship with the Father through the Holy Spirit than we could have before he, Jesus became man, died, rose from the dead, set forth the Holy Spirit. It's because of God's actions that the whole um, salvific situation has now changed, all right? Uh, and so in the other religions, God does not act in a new way. In Christianity and Judaism, God acts in a new way such that you are able to have a new kind of relationship with him that was not possible prior to his actions. Also, in the other religions, once you have the knowledge the founders of those religions become unimportant. Once you know what Buddha taught, taught, Buddha might be important because he was the first one to get it, but he's no longer really important. Once Muhammad gave you the knowledge, he may have been the founder of Islam,
but he's no longer important. What's important is the knowledge. It's like once Aristotle tells you, you know, act in potency, what you know, the principle, you, you know, Aristotle ceases to be <clears throat> important. That's not the case in, with Jesus in Christianity. Jesus never loses his importance because in order to reap the benefits of his becoming man, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, sending for the spirit, you have to abide in Jesus. You don't talk about abiding in Buddha or abiding <laughs> in Muhammad, but we do talk about in John's gospel, well, you, know, you have to abide in Jesus. You abide in me and I abide in you. This whole stuff, you know, we, I, you know, the Easter Vigil Service, baptism, you die and rise into Christ. You come to abide in Christ. The Eucharist, you receive the risen body and the risen blood of Jesus so that you abide in the risen Jesus. And it's abiding in the risen Jesus that you ultimately attain eternal life. The other religions have nothing like that. Okay? And so Christianity is far, far different. And the uh, new relationship we have with God, which is brought about by him becoming a man, the son, uh, also is a real metaphysical transformation of our soul. I mean, we remain human, but we're transformed into partakers of his life, his divine nature, uh, this abundant life. It's a profound, deep transformation. Um, and, and, and so now we're talking about change. I want to lead into another bit of insanity. Uh, you say God became a man, he suffered, he died. That's a lot of change. And, and the Christian faith, if I understand it right, is that, yes, God did suffer. Can we, before we get into that, yes. you know, if, for those, you know, uh, what I just said about Jesus and the difference, you know, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, you know, we, God's, it just goes back to God's positive will. God's positive will in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and he said, from before the foundation of the world, God predestined us to be saved in Jesus Christ. You know, uh, the whole mystery of his will that everything becomes summed up in Jesus, right? Not everything can be summed up in Buddha or, or, or Muhammad. Everything can be summed up in Jesus. It's Jesus who humbled himself that God gave the name above every other name, every other name, above Buddha, Buddha, Muhammad. He's above every other name. And every knee, every knee is to bow before him. And every tongue is to proclaim that he is Lord. He is the one and only Lord. Uh, and in the Colossians him, you know, he's the first one of all creation. And he's the first one rose from the dead so that the primacy would be his in every way. There's no one more primary, no one more important than Jesus Christ. I think that the biblical basis for this is absolutely astounding and beautiful. Uh, so now, having said that, yeah. can we get to you? You want to get well, to the question? Of well, the now, actually, you, you inspired me, uh, and, and I want to wait for a minute because uh, Jesus is Lord. He um, is is unique. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. There's nothing like this in, in, in any other religious claim. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he uh, uh, doesn't portray himself as anything other than an object of love and adoration, which scandalizes some of the, or some of the Jewish leaders take scandal, take scandal from it. He'll say, if anyone loves mother or father more than me, 
He's not worthy of me. Well, who, whom should you love more than mother or father, which heads the second tablet of the law? God, God. And they, the, the Jews there knew that he was claiming divine prerogatives for himself. So really there isn't a way to properly perceive Jesus uh, in truth as just another master co-equal with, with Buddha or Muhammad, etc. So I, I cannot thank you enough for, for beautifully bringing that out, Father. Um, and the other thing is, there is no other Savior, and we all need to be saved. That's yeah. very serious. That's very serious. Uh, the, the stakes could not be higher. The stakes are life, eternal life or death. That, you know, a, a Hindu or a Muslim or, or a Buddhist could be saved, you know, you know as we say. But ultimately, he's not saved by Buddha or Muhammad. He's going to be saved because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The salvation is going to be ultimately in Jesus, not not in any other. That's right. That's right. I th- I think an important point to note, real quick, before we get on to the to the next uh, question, is you know recent Pew polls have clearly stated that the vast majority of Catholics in America equate Jesus with a guru, a teacher, but not divine. And that's a major problem that we just answered basically perfectly, you know, that, yeah. that it, you know, the difference here. And I think until we get that cleared up, I mean, you know, we're like, there's no power in our religion. If you think he's just a teacher, there's not much, you know, not much. And, and, uh-huh. and people are going to keep leaving until they're transformed. You know, that's right. That's right. I think, you know, this is part you know, in one sense, I have a great respect for our founding fathers. Um, I'm, as I'm actually, I've been reading a very large life of George Washington uh, presently. Uh, but uh, maybe not George Washington so much, but someone like Thomas Jefferson and, and Ben Franklin, they were basically deists, you know, and they saw they respected Jesus because they felt he was a good moral teacher and that the type of morality that Jesus um, offered was a morality that a country could be founded upon. And and in a sense, rightly so. Uh, uh, But as far as Jesus being the incarnate son of God, um, that did not interest them that much. I mean, Thomas, Jefferson, who is a bundle of contradictions, um, uh, you know, he, he cut and pasted his New Testament. He could still buy it, but he took out all the miracles and right. the things about Jesus being God and rising from the dead. And he kept, you know, the Beatitudes and loving one another. Well, it, you know, that, no, that's important, but ultimately you're not going to love one another you're not going to keep the Beatitudes again if you don't abide in Jesus Christ. Um, they, 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 they cut out the foundation upon which the moral life is, is founded. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's kind of the American uh, perception today that, you know, Jesus is a good moral teacher Buddha may have been a good moral teacher. Muhammad may be a good moral teacher. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, they want to sort of live, in a sense, good lives, but are missing the, 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 the theological, supernatural basis upon which that life is built. 
Absolutely. In fact, right as <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson was uh, cutting and pasting in his New Testament in the late 18th century, uh, 1700s, you have David Hume in his Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding, the great philosopher and historian, in writing an essay on miracles in which, in which he argues that miracles are intrinsically impossible. God cannot enter the order of creation or would not ever enter the order of creation and violate the own laws that he established. Why would he do that? That's, that's incongruous. Yeah. But what happens is that leads into a literary question about the genre of the four Gospels, which are full of miracle stories. And so rationalists like Thomas Jefferson and others who accepted Hume's argument that miracles aren't possible had to approach the four Gospels as, well, there may be a historical kernel in there, but it's buried over mythology of, of, of miracle stories, and we know that can't be true. And then out, when you get those out through demythologization, you also get his unique lordship out. His divinity is out. The miracles are out. It's all out, and it's, he's just a, what, a marginal Jew or, you know, a very interesting religious leader, I suppose. That's right. I, I travel all over the country and get to hear preaching in Catholic churches in every diocese just about and we may not be cutting and pasting the new testament but we are absolutely for the most part ignoring the supernatural side of our religion you know so. you're right i i get I, i've always been quite concerned most of the homilies you hear are what i call moralistic homilies right uh teaching people how to be good nice people but you never hear or seldom hear a rousing evangelistic type of homily on the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Eucharist, the Resurrection, Baptism, you know, the, uh, the nature of the sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, and the reason is, is because I think priests do not contemplate the mysteries, you know, they do not contemplate the mysteries. And, and, and they see as their goal is trying to make people happy and trying to make people better. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, it, it's, again, uh, the, the mysteries of the faith uh, are not alive for them, you know, and, and so they don't bring them alive in the, in the, in, in the, in the congregations uh, as, as, as well. Uh, and, and it's a, 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 a real, a real shame, I think, that 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 is the that is the case. Um, so, but you know, that's why priests tell stories. You know, I'm always, you know, whenever I hear a priest story, it's always <laughs> telling a story. I think what this priest is saying, my story is going to be of more importance and interest to you than the what you just read in the gospel. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's bizarre, uh, you know. We can't be good, consistently at least, apart from Christ. And so it's a, it's a very... Uh, my wife and I sometimes call these homilies Rotary Club homilies. Be a good person. Right, that's exactly what but, they are. But really, there isn't, that's not really available... Um, consistently to be good apart from Christ. Um, but but uh, this, uh, this notion of God as either far from the created order, as you find in deism, or on the other end of the spectrum, the notion that God uh, has to, if he loves us so much, 
uh, be able to be affected by us in his divine nature, not just his human nature, but God has to be able to change uh, because he loves us uh, and react uh, to our successes or failures, etc. That seems to me also to eviscerate God, and you don't have a savior God who's, on the one hand, far away as in deism, but I don't think you have a savior God either who's in process of becoming like another creature. And, and you, Father, have written actually several, a, a handful of books and articles on that question. We call it process theism, but it simply means that theos, God, is in a process of becoming and changing. All right. Now, you, Michael, you raised, raised a very big and important question. Uh, and But I wonder, given the time that's remaining, allowed, whether we're not uh, embarking on something I cannot fully address in the time limit of still available. Could I suggest we do another whole session on this? Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you said that. Okay. So so then let's go. Can we go back to what we were talking about just a little bit more before? Yeah. You know, maybe the topic can be called, does God suffer or something like that? You know, I, I want to just make one quick point about your your point about the preaching, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm a professional evangelist. That's, that's what I, that's how I support my family. And I, I've been recently reading and I can't even remember the name of the book and I, I'm not close enough to grab it, but, um, it was about a time in America when similar to now we were having issues, like we were losing members of the church. And what happened was parish missions came and revived the church, mostly parish missions preached by order priests. They would yeah. stay for like a month. And, you know, I've been researching this time, and the topics of the parish missions, no one would even attend them now because it's like, it's amazing to me. It's like about the Trinity, about a Christology, about those topics. And that revived a major part of the church here in America it, I mean, I, I, I really, I continually go back, and I know you're going to probably roll your eyes because I quote this part of the catechism so much, to that catechism quote where it says that, look, the dogmas, there is an uh, organic link between the dogmas and our spiritual life. I think that for me, it was like, you know, I, I accepted the, the Catholic Church based on faith in the Holy Eucharist. I mean, I grew up Catholic, but I had my conversion based on faith in the Holy Eucharist. But the first time I realized that the Catholic Church was different was when I started to like read real theology and read like Henry de Lubac's, you know, the the uh, splendor of the church, I think, and things like that. That made a huge difference. And I, I'm sad that I think that a lot of priests, and this is they say this to me, think that well, in a ten minute homily, I can't get these points across. I I disagree. I really don't think that's true. Yeah, yeah. you can do it if you want to do it, and if you know what you want to say. You know, I'm convinced that if you get people to love Jesus, they'll automatically be virtuous. You know, we preach the virtue or being kind and good or whatever, and never preach about the Trinity or the Incarnation or the Eucharist. But if you get people to love Jesus, they will automatically change their lives and become holy men and women. I agree. Virtuous men and women. Uh, and so uh, to preach the mysteries of the faith is essential to them becoming truly moral people, you know, 
this is why you have Catholics who, you know, can be pro-abortion and, you know, and all this gender nonsense. Uh, you know, if they really love the mysteries of the faith, if they really love Jesus, they would they'd be thinking much more clearly about these tremendous moral issues that we face in the world and in the church today, including things like euthanasia and all this other, other stuff, you know. Uh, our religion has become so filled with sentimentality, it's incredible. Um, and, and it's, you know, a good Christian is one who's sentimental, who, you know, feels sorry for everybody who, it, but rather than, you know, we have to care and love for people, but it has to be based on the truth and not just on some whimsical sentimentality, you know? No, that's right. And, um, you know, uh, at, at, in parish missions, um, uh, if if something like that could be revived, right, uh, and and meditation on the mysteries and bringing Christ uh, to people as alive today here with us right now, uh, especially in the Eucharist, um, but present and uh, with all power, right, and a con- personal encounter and contact with Him, yeah. a conversion to Him, yeah, I think that's right. Um, it brings about. <clears throat> A transformation of your your heart, your your mind, your 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 thoughts are renewed. You have a whole new mind and heart in Christ. You're a new creature in Christ. But I think, um, yeah, Dave said people may not want that, but we have to preach the gospel in season and out of season. And you know, it's really God's work. He'll bring people, uh, you know, to uh, uh, to to Christ. Uh, uh, but we just have to be. We have to make ourselves available. And show up in, in spite of the temptation to think that what we're doing is ineffective. Uh, yeah. I think priests and, and others, we just have to show up and share Christ. I mean, I, I don't do a lot of parish missions, but I do, you know, some. And, and you know, um, you know, I, I try to do exactly what what you're saying, Michael and David, that uh, uh, bringing the gospel to the people and. And I think, you know, uh, on the whole, people do respond. You know, they do respond. I, I, I think that that's true. I think one major issue is there's a massive lack now of biblical literacy where, yeah, yeah I mean, to the point that you can now say, well, you know the story of Abraham, and, and there are people in the church who don't know what you're talking yeah, about. You're, yeah, they don't have a clue. Yeah, this is true. Right. So that is an issue, yeah. You know, I guess, you know, it's it's so illiterate. You wonder how they can read, you know, traditional English novels. Right. So, well, I don't think they can. I, I, you know, I think... Because they're missing all the, you know, uh, biblical references within within the novels themselves. You know. Right. 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 All right. Well, Father Thomas, this has been I, this has been a great discussion. Like I, I could I could go on all day. I, I really enjoyed a lot of things. Indeed. I'm just so thankful that you were able to join us. So thank you so much. And we're definitely going to have you well, back it's on for the next one. Pleasure to, to be with you. I thank you for inviting me, and uh, I look forward to um, coming back and talking about uh, whether God changes or not, or whether He's impassable or immutable, and the yeah. incarnation. What does it mean for a son of God to become man? Doesn't he change in becoming right. man? Doesn't the very word become mean that he changes? Uh, so anyway. Father Thomas, a, where can we find your, your books if we're interested? Well, all my books 
if we are on uh, uh, Amazon, if okay. you type in Thomas Wynandy, okay. uh, go to Amazon, click books, and then type in Thomas Wynandy, they'll all pop up. They'll all Great. pop up. Yeah, thanks yeah. so much for joining us. And uh, again, again, uh, tune in each week to Theology and Insanity. And if you're interested in contacting us with a question, then feel free to email us at questions at theologyandinsanity.com. And we'll try to answer your question on the air. We're also planning to have a live edition of Theology and Insanity where we can interact with you. You can call in with a question on theology and uh I know, uh, like, I love, you know, anytime I have a theology question, I, I just call Mike. So I, I, and I enjoy that. So it'll be your chance to, I know you don't have his, his phone number like I do, but it'll be your chance to call him and, and ask him questions as well. So feel free to, uh, to join us again. Uh, we hope that this is fruitful for you. We pray for you every week, and we ask that you would pray for us in return. God bless you all. Amen.